Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning in his hand, excuse me, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And the Lord said, Go. And we'll pause there. Father, we thank you. Love this passage, Father. And between you and me, you, you know, Lord, that you've used this in my life a lot of times. Father, I'm praying that you would give us fresh eyes to see this passage this morning. I pray, God, that you would do what you want to do in our hearts today. And that, Lord, we would um, very much so be like Isaiah in our response to you. Uh, Lord, we love you. And we just give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So yesterday I was uh, at a coffee shop, which is no shocker if you know me, and uh, I was reading this and kind of preparing for uh, today, and quite honestly, I knew I was preaching today for weeks, but in the back of my mind, I had already planned out what I was going to share, and then a couple days ago when I sat down to share it, I was like, or to study it, the Lord was like, this ain't it, and I was, it's one of those, like, no, Lord, you know what day it is, Lord? It's like Friday, you can't be changing gears on me. So I was um, praying, and, and the Lord just kind of, I, I felt, directed me to this passage. But anyways, I was just reading this passage, kind of preparing, and um, this girl walked by, worked at the coffee shop, and she said, hey, what you working on? I said, um, I'm preparing to teach one of the most popular passages in the entire Bible. And that response, as it came out, I was like, that's kind of a weird response. Like, I could have just said reading, you know, or studying, but I was like, I am getting ready to teach one of the most famous passages in the entire scriptures, you know. And I kind of like, well, that was a weird response, I thought, of myself. But, but then I was like, yeah, it is that. It is that. How many of you guys, just by show of hand, have heard this or portions of this passage or quotes from this passage? Most of us. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've either read it, heard it read, heard a sermon on it, preached a sermon on it. Um, so it's familiar territory to a lot of us. Now, if you're here and you've never read this passage, heard this passage before, this is your first time, you're welcome. I get the privilege of being the guy to share it with you. This is just one of those gems uh, tucked in the Old Testament. And what it is, this little chapter, it's not a long chapter, tucked in the huge book of Isaiah, this little chapter is dealing with ultimately the commission of Isaiah into the ministry, but, but what it is 
specifically is Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, and um, from that vision, he is then called into full-time ministry. So what, what makes this, there's a lot of things that make this passage famous, but I, the, the kind of the oomph for this morning, I feel, is the, the last quote of, of Isaiah there where he prays passionately. What does he say? Here I am, send me. Or if you have a King James, here am I, <laughs> send me. Same thing. And that passionate prayer of reckless abandon to God. And guys, listen, that is a prayer that has been prayed countless times since that time by countless saints. It's a famous prayer, a noteworthy prayer. And, I, and I'm just going to kind of, this is not going to be a trick sermon. I'm going to give you the application that we're going to end up on in an hour and a half. Now, I'm just kidding. It's going to be more like half hour. Anyway, I'm going to give you the application now. My prayer is that by the end of the, our going through this chapter again, that there would be some of us in here this morning that with the same heart would pray what Isaiah prayed. Maybe you've prayed it before, but it would be like a re-upping of that prayer. Saying again to God, here I am, send me. Or maybe some of us for the first time you would say before God, here I am, O God, with reckless abandon, send me. But you can't start there. Okay, that's where he ended up, and the, the rest is history, but it started with a vision, and we're going to get into that. Before I do, I want to just kind of prime the proverbial pump here and just kind of remind you about Isaiah, because Isaiah's, I mean, I taught through Isaiah a few years ago. It is a long, hard book to teach. I'm just going to be straight up honest. We always say, I love Isaiah. I'm like, really? Because the first 39 chapters are like judgment, 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 judgment. There's some gems in there, but man, it's a, it's a toughie. Isaiah himself, is, you know, he ends up being the most beloved prophet, right? Did you know, know this? He served God as a prophet for like 50 or 60 years faithfully. Homeboy was just faithful. He was serving at a time uh, uh, right around, and we'll, we'll get the date of it, but he, he kind of spanned at least four kings of the southern kingdom of Judah um, during a pretty good time, at least from the outward circumstances in their history. I don't know if you guys remember this, but after King Solomon died, Israel split. They had a civil war, and they split into two. There was the northern kingdom that's referred to as Israel, and then there was a southern kingdom made up of Judah and Benjamin. It was just called Judah. And the, the northern kingdom, for their entire history, had zero good kings. They were all worthless. <laughs> in the southern kingdom... It was a mixed bag. They had a lot of bad ones, a few good ones. Um, and it's during that time period of the southern kingdom, during uh, the reign of several kings, that Isaiah is prophesying. It's interesting, too, by the way. Outwardly looking in, the nation was doing well. They were prospering economically. Their military was on point. They... Uh, 
they were just on the outside looking in. It looked good. In fact, religiously, everything looked like it was going well. They had the temple in place. There was priests. The sacrifices were rolling. But honestly, this nation that, that Isaiah was prophesying to, and the reason it's so judgment-filled is because though they looked good on the outside, they were dying on the inside. They were decaying from the inside out because they had lost their moral compass. They may have been worshiping God on the Sabbath, but they were worshiping every other idol every other day of the week. And so they were just in an absolute decline, though from the outside looking in, they still looked pretty good. And so Isaiah was bringing this message that really wasn't well received of judgment to come and all the rest. But Isaiah, amazing, amazing man of God. But let's look at this vision that he had. And we're just going to go kind of bit by bit through this. The first thing I want to look at in verses 1 through 4 is um, what Isaiah saw, the vision that he saw. But notice first when he saw it. Okay, look at verse 1. We're just going to unpack this verse by verse, phrase by phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now that would have been about 739, 740 B.C. King Uzziah died, and that's, he says, in the year that he died, that's when I saw this vision. I think that's significant. I, I, I agree with those Bible guys who, who say this little phrase is included not only to put a time stamp on when this vision was, but the event itself was significant. Here's what I mean by that. King Uzziah was one of the good kings I was referring to. This guy was amazing. You can read about his life in Chronicles. I think it's Second Chronicles 25. You can read about it. He came into power when he was 16 years old. Now trip out on that. Obviously, it was a monarchy, so it's like he didn't get voted in. He's the family line. He becomes king at 16. He has some very godly men around him. But here's one thing I want to say about, about Uzziah. At 16, he decided to do what was right in his life. At 16, teenager, he said, I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to do what's right. And I love that. Because everyone says, oh, you got to live those rebellious years when you're teens. Nope. You know what the Bible's full of? Teenagers that went hard after Jesus and changed the world. And we could go down a whole list. But this guy was a young man. He's like, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do what's right. He served for 52 years. How would you like to be the opposing party and the other guys in office for 52 years? It was a 52 good years. Um, during his reign, he dominated the Philistines, like the arch enemy of Israel, right? He expanded the kingdom. He took back lost territory. He just built this, this super strong army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. They were just rock solid. He himself was like a Tony Stark. The guy just like invented weapons. The Bible says he invented like these ways to like shoot arrows and rocks, and it was pretty awesome. Um, he was... Uh, Behind the economy just being strong, he was a farmer. He just kind of, he was just like this renaissance king. Just absolutely made the, the nation strong and secure, and the people loved him. Um, little side note, at the end of his life, he got cocky, kind of thought it was all about him. God gives him leprosy, and he actually dies of that. But he gets the coveted stamp. <laughs> so he dies of leprosy, I mean, so what? Little detail, but... Um, but he gets the stamp. What stamp? You see, when you read through like Kings and Chronicles, there's just one line that matters when it goes through who the kings were. And it, was, it, it either says this, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, or it'll say he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And guess what? He gets the good one. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I'm not just giving you just details for details' sake and to take up time. Uzziah was loved. 
He brought security. He brought um, just wealth, and, and the nation was prospering under him. And it's when he died, I find it interesting, that is when Isaiah saw the Lord. Would not some of you agree with me that it's often in times of instability and when you're unsure and things are crumbling that that's when you actually kind of see the Lord working in your life? You know what I'm saying? We actually, unfortunately, start to lean on other people. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's whatever. You're you're leaning on a pastor. You're leaning on somebody and you're like putting your security. Maybe you don't even realize you're doing it, but then all of a sudden they're removed and all of a sudden, whoop, the rug's pulled out and you're like, oh my gosh, now there's uncertainty and question marks and what's going to happen? And that's when God shows up in Isaiah's life. And notice what he saw. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the Lord. And by the way, if if you're like study these things or you're interested this it's it's an interesting point but it's more than interesting what does it mean that he saw the lord some of the headings that you'll read uh, under isaiah 6 when it's introducing the chapter it'll say isaiah's vision of jehovah that's cool i don't argue that at all but specifically this is what's interesting who is he seeing i believe that it's clear isaiah is actually seeing jesus christ the reason i say that there's an interesting passage in John 12, verse 41-ish, you guys can check it out, where Jesus is quoting Isaiah, and then John makes a comment about this and says, he said this when he saw the Lord in his glory. In other words, he's saying, Isaiah saw this, what what Jesus was quoting, when he saw him in his glory. The point is, is that when John is saying that, he's basically, if you... look at the language he's saying isaiah said this when he saw him as if jesus was standing in the room saying when he saw jesus in his glory does that make sense bottom line is is that jesus is god amen this is just one of the the many many passages in the scripture that prove the deity of jesus he's on the throne he's ruling and 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 look at that he's on a throne did you know every time in the bible where there's a vision of heaven and it's peeled back guess what's the first thing that people see a throne There's a throne in heaven. A throne speaks of ruling and authority and power and sovereignty. And guess who's sitting on it? This isn't a trick question I'm actually asking you. Guess who's sitting? It's Jesus. He's on the throne. And by the way, going back to what I said earlier about King Uzziah dying, how comforting would that have been to Uzziah, or excuse me, Isaiah, when he realizes Uzziah's dead and he's tripping out and maybe he's insecure and the heavens are peeled back and he sees, guess what? Jesus sitting on the throne. Oh, there may not be a a guy sitting on the throne yet in Israel or Judah, but guess who's always been on the throne, always will be on the throne, and he's in complete power. Amen? It's Jesus. By the way, we could probably learn a lesson from that. Rulers come and go in this world, but we need to understand something when we're reading the news or watching the news or getting all frothy about the news is that there's one who's sitting on the throne and things are not out of control. They are firmly in his grip. Amen? So all of that to say he sees the Lord, but now notice with me, and this is where we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty. He saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. His, his train, his hem of his garment just filling the temple and it it goes on to say um, that I lost my place above him there were seraphim now seraphim they're only mentioned one other time they're a rank evidently of angels and they're glorious listen to this description 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. So, by the way, the word seraphim literally means fiery serpent. So let your imagination run wild. Here's this fiery serpent-like angelish being that has six wings with two covering his eyes, with two covering the feet, and with two constant motion just flying around the throne of God. And, and by the way, there's debate back and forth. What does it mean that they're covering their eyes? I believe what it means when they're covering their eyes is as if they're saying, we are not worthy to even be looking upon the one who's on the throne. When they're covering their feet, it's as if they're saying, we're not even worthy to stand in the very presence of the one who's sitting on the throne. They're constantly flying, and the idea is they're in service, in motion to the Lord. And when they see him without, I don't know if they peek through a feather or what, but they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or the army of angels, the, the captain of the army of angels. Holy, holy, holy. Hebrew language, you know, when you read your Bibles, you don't have italics or bold. To show emphasis, they would always do repetition. And they're just declaring, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. To be holy means set apart. They're saying you are altogether different than anything. Nothing can be compared to you. You are God alone. You are righteous. You are worthy. All of those things fall into that. They're worshiping. You get the picture? And they're just crying it out. And then one would cry to one, holy, holy, holy. And the other one would cry out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is just kind of taking this all in. And then it says in verse 4, as I'm getting ramped up in my voice, I can hear it. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Check this out. So Isaiah sees this throne and he sees the Lord in his glory sitting on the throne and these angelic beings. It doesn't say how many there were. Could have been a zillion of them. I don't know. And they're all just crying, holy, holy. And as they're doing that, the place is literally shaking. And it says smoke is filling up the whole place. Now, it doesn't mean somebody lit a fire. The idea is, and Ezekiel mentions this in Ezekiel 10, in one of his visions, is it, it, it describes a cloud, and it describes it as the glory. Guys, the point is, something of the actual Shekinah glory of God, the weightiness of his very presence, something, the essence of his presence is in that place. And it's so overwhelming, these angels can't even look at them. They're just crying, holy, and the whole place is shaking, and the smoke is filling the place. Crazy. The glory of God. I'm accentuating this for a purpose. You know, uh, Wednesday nights, we're going through Exodus. You're welcome to join us. We're going through Exodus, and we happen to be in chapter 19 this last week. And in Exodus 19, we came to this place where um, the children of Israel are camped out, at the base of Mount Sinai. And that's where Moses is going to... He's going to get the law this week. You should come. It's going to be great. Um, but prior to that, God wants to kind of, in a sense, meet the people. And what happens is all two and a half million of them gather around the base of Mount Sinai. And we're told something of God's presence comes down on that mountain. And it's filled with fire and smoke. And it's trembling. The whole, the whole mountain is quaking. And as a voice, it was like a trumpet. And it just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And we're going to see this week in chapter 20 that the people basically say, Moses, we don't even want to hear God speak. You go talk to him, but it's too freaky. We can't handle. You go talk to him and tell us what he said. In fact, when that meeting happened, God says, you better tell the people, Moses. You better tell the people that they better set boundaries 
and they better not just get curious and try to come up the mountain and see me because I will kill them. They will die. They cannot handle my presence. They cannot handle my glory. There's got to be boundaries. And what we talked about on Wednesday night was that whole chapter communicated the unapproachability of God because he's glorious. How he is holy and righteous and worthy. And guess what? We are not. And it just underscores the distance between a holy God and a sinful person. And they were shaken to their core. Now back to the story. What is Isaiah's response? He said, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. (laughs) Isaiah's response was spot on. It's the right response. When Isaiah saw the glory in front of him, when he saw Jesus in all of his splendor and all of his majesty, his response was, woe is me. The word woe, you read, a, it's like an Old Testament word. I was trying to find like modern equivalents of it, and all I could come up with is alas, but honestly, I don't know anyone who says alas. Alas, I missed the bus, you know, or whatever. Um, we don't really talk like that, but the word woe is evidently a, a onomatopoeia. Is that how you say that word? Any English teachers in the house? English students? Anyone go to high school? Um, it's, it's one of those words that sounds like what it means. That's the idea. So when it says like, whoa, it's, there's not like this like crisp translation. The idea is it's this expression that wells up from your gut and is this expression of extreme despair and, and regret and pain and sorrow. He's basically saying, oh, no. That would be my loose translation of woe. He says, woe is me. He says, I am lost. That's the ESV translation. If you have a different translation, it would say something like, I am undone. I like that one. If you have an old King Jimmy, I think it says, I am undone. What was his response? If I could add to it, just maybe paraphrase. Oh, no. I'm dead. I should not be here. And what is, what's the next thing that comes out of his mouth? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people who have unclean lips. Now, now let's just talk about that for a second because it's kind of a curious way of stating it. If he's all of a sudden aware of his sinfulness, why didn't he just say, I am a man of unclean spirit or soul? Why did he say lips? Well, it's a good question. Jesus really sums it up in the Gospels when he says, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I don't think it's coincidence, by the way, what was Isaiah's job? He was a prophet. What does a prophet do? Speaks for God. He talks all the time. And so I think what Isaiah is communicating clearly is, I am a man of unclean lips. By him saying that, he's saying, I am a man who is unclean in my heart. And in my soul, I am a mess. I am unclean. The word unclean means polluted, dirty, filthy. As he's standing before perfect holiness and righteousness, he says, I am all of a sudden very aware of my dirtiness. And I live among a people that are dirty and stained and unclean. And that's why he's like, oh my gosh, woe is me. And guys, I want to say something. And I've already said it, but I'll say it again. This is the right response. 
This is the response of a man who all of a sudden is getting a glimpse of the glory and righteousness of God, and his response is, I'm unclean. I'm filthy. I'm a mess. That's not real politically correct, is it? There's some even in the church that don't like to talk about this kind of thing. Oh, don't say you're unclean. You're not that bad. No, you're that bad. Guys, we need to get this down. Apart from Jesus, we're that bad and worse. We are altogether filthy. We are lost. We are stained. We are rebellious against God. We sweep our little sins under the rug, but you can't sweep them under the rug because the littlest in our estimation of our sins is high treason against a holy God and deserves death. And the distance between a holy God and a created little sinful person like you and me is infinite, and we can't even imagine the distance between God and us. And so when Isaiah sees God, he's floored. And he says, in essence, kill me now. I should not be here. I I am so aware of, of my sin and my guilt. But I'm very thankful it doesn't end there, okay? And you might say, this is not a really fun sermon. Hang in there. But then verse 6, one of the seraphim, one of these crazy, fiery serpent creature guys, flew to me, and in his hand he had a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from off the altar. I'd be like, what are you planning on doing with that burning coal? Anyway, with the coal, verse 7, it says, he touched my mouth, and he said, now listen, just let this, this verse sink in. Behold, He's touched your lips. Or excuse me, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is removed, purged. Amen? As Isaiah sees the Lord, he sees his sinfulness. He responds in a confession of that sinfulness before God. He's undone. doesn't try to hide it or play around with it. He just says, I've got nothing. And upon that, this angel shows up with this coal. But where's the coal from? It's a live coal from off the altar. Remember, that's a temple that he's envisioning. And, and the altar was the place that you would bring a sacrifice for when you sinned, and you would offer that sacrifice as a substitution for your wrongdoing, and then it would be accepted by God. And he takes that coal from off the altar, and he touches the lips. Where, where was the, the source of his, uh, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, so he says, okay, let me touch your lips. And he at that point says, because this coal from the altar has touched your lips, your sin, Isaiah, is removed. And that's what it means. It is drug away from you. It is taken away. It, you have been atoned for. The New Testament equivalent of the word would be, there's been reconciliation. Your sin is covered. Amen? Listen, don't miss this. This is the crux of the whole matter right now. Whenever you see the altar in the Old Testament, it's always a type and it's always a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ and the work he would do on the cross because the altar was the place where a substitutionary sacrifice was made on behalf of the person. They all looked forward. They all looked forward. They all looked forward because they had to keep bringing those sacrifices. They never were enough. They never could actually take away sin completely. So they were undone. They were incomplete until one day Jesus came and John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who voluntarily goes to the cross and dies as a substitution for the sins of the world. Amen? And guys, any of us who have been touched by Jesus Christ, who have come to the cross and fallen down in acknowledgement of our sin and our unrighteousness before a holy God, 
He has touched our lips, as it were, with that coal, and we have had our sins removed from us. Amen? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you actually can come before the presence of God. Can we just trip out on this for a second, you guys? If we don't have the cross of Jesus Christ applied to our life, if you've never been born again, if you've never put your faith in God, you cannot stand before a holy God and there will come a day when you will pass from this life to the next and your good works will not save you and your positive mental attitude will not save you and your, your whatever it is that you're counting on to give you merit before God cannot, will not save you. The only thing that allows us to stand in the presence of a holy God is that we have our sins taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, you're, listen, I'll take it one step further. You're not only forgiven. Jesus is not only taking your sin from you. He's actually given now to you his righteousness. That's the New Testament doctrine of justification. It's not just that our sins have been removed. It's that we've also been given the very righteousness of Jesus. That means, I wouldn't even say this if it was in the, wasn't in the Bible because I'd feel like I'm blaspheming. That means Jason Beale can come into the presence of God boldly anytime I want to because I'm not coming based on my merit and my failures. I'm coming because I have been washed by the blood of Jesus and robed in his righteousness. And so have you if you're a believer in Christ. Amen? So this is all a, a very much a picture for us, isn't it? So here's Isaiah. He sees the vision, sees the Lord. The Lord's on the throne. He responds in absolute broken humility, which is the right response. By the way, that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When a person finally realizes that they aren't okay, that, that person's on the brink of salvation. But as long as we say, I'm okay, nothing's wrong with me, there's really no hope. Isaiah breaks, confesses, he's cleansed, he's made righteous. Now look at this next phrase. It turns a corner and we're almost done. Verse 8. And then I heard a voice. See, he saw a vision, but now he hears a voice. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? There's so much in this, just this little passage, but somehow the scene shifts. Isaiah now able to be in the presence of God, and the Lord is speaking. And he's speaking, he says, who am I going to sin? Who will go for us? And by the way, we always love to point out that he says, who will go for us? Who's he talking to? Maybe he's talking to the angels, probably just talking to himself. Since he's the Trinity, there's the us factor there. Who shall I send? Who shall go for us? Isaiah overhears God looking for volunteers. That's what this is. Oh man, who's gonna, who, who can I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah hears that. And without hesitation, Isaiah, maybe both hands, ooh, 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 pick me. He cries out, here I am, here I am. Here, here I am. Send me. And this is what I love about this passage, you guys. God hasn't told them what the job is yet. Do you guys get that? All God has said at this point is, who will go? Who, who can I send? Who's, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah's like, I'll go. Send me. I'm the, I'm, I'm the one. God, God, send me. Please let me go. And that's what I love about that prayer. 
see those words, here I am, you know what those are? Those are words of absolute, reckless surrender of a life to God's will above his own. That is a man on his knees, falling in his face, saying, see, here's the thing, God. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter if it's what I want to do or don't want to do. See, this is what I'm declaring to you, God. Here I am. I am all yours. Send me. Amen? And guys, that is the reasonable response of a man or a woman who has been touched by the grace of God, who somehow in some way the Spirit of God has revealed Jesus to them and they've seen their own sinfulness and they've confessed it and they've tasted the salvation of God, the grace of God, and in response they say, here I am. This is Romans 12.1 in the Old Testament. Pastor Steve's teaching on Romans. Romans 12 says, Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God. The therefore is connecting the first 11 chapters where God was talking about this marvelous salvation we have. He says, Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. What is, God's, what is, what is Paul saying there in Romans 12? The most reasonable response to having a life that has been touched by the grace of God is an absolute surrender of your will and your life to his. Amen? Amen or no? It is. I'm a, it really helps me when you say amen. Even if you're not into it, just kick one down anyway, okay? Just, it just helps me out. Um, but it is an amen, so there. This is really, you know, you get to a place when you're studying a sermon or whatever, and, and I know what the Lord's put on my heart, but there just comes to a, a stopping point where there's no amount of preaching or word combinations I can come up with to, um, to make this happen in anyone's life. See, what I believe we need is something I can't do. It's not, nothing Pastor Steve can do. What I think I need, what I think you need, what I think our church needs, and I don't mean just our church, I mean the church at large. I think more than ever, guys, we need a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. We need to somehow see him again, and that's not something we can work up or make happen. We need to see him, and see him dying for our sins, to see him in his glory, and see, quite frankly, our, our sinfulness apart from him. But see him paying for it and loving us because in that will come naturally that response of here I am, send me. It does no good for a guy like me to come up here and pound a pulpit and say, get out there on the mission field and let's serve God. That'll last for about lunchtime. But when you really have been touched by the grace of God, no one's got to tell you anything. You are going to jump at the opportunity. You're going to say, look, here I am, send me God. Don't raise your hand. Don't Yet, but just think about this for a second. Have you prayed that prayer? See, I think there's some older saints in here today. You know, you guys and ladies who've been walking with Jesus 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, and there was maybe a time in your life, maybe you were at a youth rally or some event or whatever, and with all sincerity, you said, God, here's my life. I lay it down before you. And you meant it, and God heard it. 
But maybe life's just gotten busy. Maybe it took a left turn where you didn't expect it to, and maybe there's this, and maybe you thought, well, maybe God doesn't need me anymore or whatever. I wonder if there's just some of you in here today that are in that category that the Lord's saying, no, I'm still looking for volunteers. I wonder if there's any of you right now with your heart pounding, you'd say, I think that's what I want to do again. I just want to come to God and say, here I am. I want to lay down my rights. We're all about our rights in our culture right now. Guys, can I just remind us as Christians, we don't have any. We're slaves who've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And how we need seasoned saints who once again fall on their face and say, God, here I am. Still, send me. And what about young men, young women? I honestly ask myself the question, and this is not a guilt gotcha or anything like that. This is just something I, I mull over in my head. I'm like, where's the young bucks? Where's the next pastor's? Where's the guys that are going to leave the island and go be missionaries? Where's the women that are going to go leave the island and be missionaries? Where's the ones that are going to stay on the island to be missionaries? By the way, do you know where, you know where God sent Isaiah? Home. <laughs> Send me, I'll go anywhere you want. Cool, go home. And just keep doing what you're doing for the next 50 years, Isaiah. It goes on that chapter, he goes, how long? And basically God goes, until the bitter end, no one's going to believe you, but just do it. I think for the vast majority of us, we're just going to get sent right back to work tomorrow. But in a way that's different, where we're like, but I'm not just going to work to go to work, and I'm not just going to school to go to school. I'm going there because I'm on mission for God now, because he's changed my life. And what's important is not my education at the top or getting money. This is about being an ambassador for Jesus Christ in my personal context. Amen? But back to what I was saying. I wonder if there's any younger folks in here Guys, the young men, and I have a heart for young men because God got a hold of me as a young man who would lay down and say, here I am, send me. Amen, bro. Yeah. So that's how I want to wrap it up to, today. And this is, again, this is not something where it's like, um, you know, I'm not trying to crank anything out. I'm just saying, I just want to say this. If the Holy Spirit speaking to you today and, and maybe just be super honest with God and be like, I don't really feel like that. I'm not really there. You know what I would say to you if that's you? Thanks for being honest. And I would just say, take that honesty to God. Just be like, God, I don't even feel like surrendering my life to you. I don't even see it. I don't really get it. But maybe add this. But I want to want to. God, I want to want to. And, and so, Lord, here I am to ask you to open my heart so I can say, here I am. Does that make sense to anyone but me? You understand what I'm saying? But just be honest with God. And for others of you, maybe you're here and you're like, no, the Lord's speaking in my heart. And you know what? I need to lay down my plans to go to school, my, my career plans and all of this. And he may send you to school. And he may bolster your career. Praise God if he does those things. But what if he just wants to take you full left field? Are you willing? Is there a line you've drawn where you say, I'll, I'll let God use me, but only up to this point? What if we were crazy like Isaiah and we just were like, God, no matter what you want to do, here I am. I'm not going to try to make anything happen, but I'm just going to lay down my life before you, and I'm going to say, my life is yours. Amen? Let's stand together. Fathers, we stand here this morning. We acknowledge 
Maybe we haven't thought about it in a long time. You are a holy, holy God. And I am guilty, Lord, of so often not focusing on your righteousness and your majesty and your holiness. And it's so unthinkable to think that you would take my sins, this corrupt man, and the things I've done and the things I've thought about doing, and you've cleansed me. And you know, Father, how much we've been through and how the things you've taken out of my life. And I just want to pray right now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you just remind our souls again? Would you give us fresh vision of Jesus in his glory and yet dying for our sins? And Lord, some of us this morning just want to say that prayer. We just want to say, here I am, Lord. Guys, with our heads bowed, and this is not meant really except for anybody but you and the Lord, but if you're here today and, and this is on your heart, you don't just, not just do it to do it, but it's really on your heart, you really want to say, God, here I am. I want to lay my life before you, and I want to say in a sense, send me to do whatever you want to do in my life. I'm laying my life before you, full surrender. If that's you and you want to say that prayer to God, either again or for the first time, just raise your hand up to the Lord right now. Lord, you see our hearts. You see these, these hands, these lives. And Lord, we say right now, Lord, here we are. Here I am. Father, use us, send us. Lord, we want to give you with reckless abandon full rights to our lives. And we don't want to hold anything back and forgive us for holding stuff back. We give you ourselves. And we say thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. And now, Lord, we've given our lives to you afresh. Now, Lord, we invite you to just do whatever it is you want to do in our lives. Tomorrow, we got to go back to work. And tomorrow, we got to go back to school or back home or whatever. So, Lord, we just want to be surrendered in that and be used in that. But, Lord, if there's some greater thing or, or different plan, Lord, unfold it now. Lord, send missionaries out. Raise up pastors. Lord, do great things. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's applaud the Lord. He is good. All right.